The story of Caligula. A peacock screeches. Have you ever heard a peacock screech? It's a sound that goes right through your body, telling your every nerve and fibre that something is desperately wrong. Shouts and a general clamour from the next hill. More screams, human this time. Is that blood running down the gutter from the Imperial Palace? A body lies in a lake of fresh blood in a covered corridor that leads from the outside into the Emperor's Palace. Stabbed more than 30 times in every part of the body, even the most private, and his jawbone split. His body slaves lift him and take him to his wife, but the assassins are close behind, and wife and infant daughter quickly follow him to the afterlife. The slaves retreat, terrified. This is the scene that greets Herod Agrippa when he finally tracks down his friend. We should get out of here, sire, says Blastus, clutching at the king's sleeve in his panic. No, says Herod, shaking him off. Not yet. You said Caesonia is dead? And the baby, confirms Blastus. And no one knows where Claudius is? No, sire, says Blastus. No one has seen him. Then all his heirs are gone, or trapped miles away in exile, says Herod. Because he exiled them, mutters Blastus, but he does so under his breath. When a man's close friend is lying dead at his feet in a pool of blood, it isn't the time to start criticising his family relationships. When the survivor is a king, it's best not to criticise his friends at all. According to their custom, if there are no heirs, then anyone who owed money to the deceased and hadn't paid it is responsible for seeing to their proper burial and all the required rituals. Sire, you aren't going to carry out some pagan ritual and worship the man, are you? says Blastus nervously. He's seen this emperor demand worship in his own city, and even worse, demand that his statue be placed in the temple in Jerusalem itself. He wasn't sure anything could really surprise him anymore. But Herod is not impressed. Of course not, he snaps, shoving Blastus to one side and kneeling down by his friend in the blood. But they believe to be improperly buried is a terrible fate, that the ghost of a person not buried properly haunts the earth in torment and cannot rest. We can cremate him and bury him, at least. Beyond that, his soul will have to fend for itself. Go and find some slaves and get them back here. Drag them by the hair if you have to. Blaster scurries off to look for the household slaves. Not far away, Herod can hear Gaius' German bodyguard running riot around the palace, furious at the death of their master and ready to blame anyone but themselves for what was clearly a spectacular failure on their part. On his way over here, Herod saw them killing senators almost at random. Some he was fairly sure had been involved in the assassination, others he was almost certain had not. Oh, my friend, Herod sighs, sinking down by the body. How did it come to this? You, the handsome darling of Rome for six months, despite the falling sickness. And then he stops talking, for it is not proper to speak ill of the dead. He knows the man was troubled. He remembers the strange illness that nearly killed him a few months into his reign, the slow recovery. He remembers the headaches, the sleepless nights and the tormented thoughts that raged in Gaius' brain. He remembers a letter he received when Gaius had gone to the coast with the army on manoeuvres, complaining that the ocean itself was talking to him, teasing him, threatening him. He remembers the paranoia, the recklessness and the cruel treatment of even the man's sisters, cousins, uncle. Herod is not unaware of Gaius' flaws. 
and yet he loves him. Even now, lying in that lake of blood, his body mangled and abused. He loves the memory of nights out and drinking parties and playing dice into the small hours in younger days. Even in the bad years, he loves the passion. He even loves the recklessness a little bit. Love is love, perhaps. And so Herod gently lifts the body, takes it to the nearest room and lays it on a couch. He tears off a piece of curtain to cover the face and he takes off the soldier sandals that gave Gaius his nickname when he was two years old. Little Boot, Caligula. Blastus returns, bringing a gaggle of reluctant slaves with him. Hastily, they wrap the body up in a sheet and throw it onto a litter, which they carry as quickly as possible across the hill to the gardens, while others carry wood and kindling for the pyre. The winter sun peeks through the haze as they build the pyre, light it, step back. Now what? asks Blastus, adding, sire, before he forgets. We stand vigil, says Herod. Like sitting Shiva? asks Blastus. I suppose, says Herod. We stand and watch until the body is completely burned. Only when the body is fully burned and buried can the spirit rest. He pauses. Though half a burning will ensure the body cannot be desecrated by his enemies, he adds, glancing towards the Palatine Hill, where more noises and shouts can be heard. A slave brings Herod a folding chair, and he wraps his blood-stained robes around him and sits down. Blastus, with a nod of permission, kneels on the ground beside him, and they watch the pale sun slip towards the skyline. More noise, more shouting. A man appears, breathing heavily from unaccustomed running. It is Claudius' slave, Narcissus. Sire, King Herod, Narcissus gasps, choking on the ash and spitting out bits of ex-emperor as he rushes to find them. They told me you were here. Who told you? asks Herod, panicking a little. What is it? The emperor's slave, says Narcissus in answer to the first question. Sire, my master needs you. Claudius is alive, cries Herod, jumping up from his seat. A soldier found him where he was hiding in the palace. They dragged him out and declared him emperor. They have taken him to their camp. The senate has met and they are talking about bringing back the republic. Sire, we do not know what to do. Narcissus hunches over, wheezing, tears in his eyes. What do you mean you do not know what to do, cries Herod. He must claim the throne. The Senate will not allow him to live if they restore the Republic. He must act if he wishes to last the night. Oh, come and tell him that for Jove's sake, cries Narcissus, forgetting for a moment that he is a slave talking to a king. He is in a blind panic and talking about running away. There is nowhere to run to, says Herod. We will come straight away. He glances towards the pyre as the small winter sun disappears behind the hill and then looks to the huddle of Gaius' slaves standing in its flickering light. See that he cannot be recognised, then take him off the pyre and bury him here, Herod commands. Then come to the camp to look after your new master. Blaster, see to it that they do it. And with one last glance, he strides away down the hill towards the camp, Narcissus scurrying breathlessly at his heels. Blastus turns a grumpy face towards the slaves and snaps at them to get on with it, pulling his cloak around him and standing uncomfortably close to the pyre to fight off the January cold. A warm spring breeze blows through the gardens. It is evening and the peacocks are resting in the treetops. From around the brightly coloured marble pillars of the bathhouse, two immaculately dressed women head a small, solemn train of slaves and freedwomen. A few steps behind these courtly ladies, 
The watchmen of the gardens are guiding them past caged tigers, statues of Priapus and elaborate frescoes, to a small and apparently unassuming flowerbed. It is here, my ladies, says the first watchman, gesturing towards this patch of earth. It has obviously been worked over relatively recently, but zinnia flowers in red, yellow and purple are already standing proud across a distinct hump in the ground. This is where the late emperor is buried. Are you wishing to say prayers to his marness, Mistress Agrippina, Mistress Livilla? Livilla nods, but Agrippina has other ideas. Far more than that, she says. We intend to have him excavated, properly cremated, and interred in the mausoleum of our great-grandfather Augustus with the proper ceremonies. There is a sharp intake of breath from Livilla, who sees in her mind's eye the anger of the assassins and the fragility of their uncle's new regime. She hears, almost as if they were being spoken out loud, the ugly rumours about her and her sister's relationship with their late brother, and feels sure that this act of sisterly devotion will be misinterpreted by the gossips eager to spread salacious rumours of incest and orgies and all kinds of sexual deviance. But Agrippina is confident. She sees the doubt written on her sister's face and puts a consoling arm around her. We are Antigone, she says, squeezing Livilla's shoulder. We will defy the laws of man to obey the laws of the gods and bury our foolish, mistaken brother in the proper way. Antigone ended up dead, if I remember the play correctly, says Livilla, shaking off her sister's arm. But as she looks up, she sees to her surprise that the watchmen have expressions of surprise and delight on both their faces. Truly, mistress? asks the second watchman eagerly. You are going to give him a full and proper burial rite? That pleases you, watchman, says Agrippina, making an I-told-you-so face at her sister. You think this act of piety is worth doing? It's not that, mistress, says the second watchman as the first tries to hush him. It's more that in doing so you will put his soul to rest. What? says Livilla, while Agrippina raises a sceptical eyebrow. Every night we see it, says the second watchman, ignoring the first grabbing his arm, trying to make him stop talking. For hours and hours he wanders the gardens in the dark, complaining of a headache or crying out that the ocean is plotting against him. Blood pours from his wounds in an endless flood and he cries out, You can't kill me, I'm a god! Hush, man, snaps the first watchman, kicking the second viciously in the leg. My ladies, I am so sorry. Please ignore this superstitious old woman here. Is it true? Livilla asks him. Please speak freely. Have you seen and heard this thing as well? The first watchman shifts uncomfortably. He looks from the face of one royal lady to the other, trying to work out what they want to hear, what will keep him alive and in a job. Agrippina is implacable. Her expression gives away nothing. Livilla is pleading. She almost seems to want to hear stories of her brother's restless spirit. In the end, he decides to go with the truth and let fate decide what to do with him. I have seen and heard things, yes, my lady, he says. It is as my companion says. I have seen a bloodied figure restlessly pacing these grounds throughout the night. I have heard cries and screams and low moans. That settles it, says Agrippina firmly. He must be properly buried in our family mausoleum without delay. We will have a full family funeral. Uncle Claudius does not have to come, but my son, Nero, and his cousins should be there. Yes, says Livilla with a sigh. An image of a stage Antigone flashes across her vision, 
and she suddenly has a premonition. She will not long survive this task. But Agrippina, she suspects, would survive the flood. Perhaps if she helps with this, her sister will do her the same favour, and her soul will be spared from wandering the earth with their brother. The sun disappears beneath the horizon, and they turn to go. As they walk out of the gardens, both women become aware of a restless stirring behind them. Livilla glances towards the watchmen. They are both staring straight ahead, towards the gates, their heads not turning, their eyes fixed on the exit. She hears a moaning sound, and a sound like feet in soldiers' sandals hobbling down the path behind them. She can hear the clink of the fastenings with each step, and the softer sound of the hobnail boots crunching along the gravelled path. No one says anything, but even Agrippina picks up the pace. At the gate they have to wait a moment while the slaves open it and the watchmen settle themselves into their positions. The moaning gets louder and the hobnailed footsteps seem to be getting closer and closer. Agrippina is tight-lipped, her mouth pursed. Lavilla is wide-eyed and shaking. Both dive through the gate as quickly as possible in a somewhat unladylike fashion. We will send the slaves to exhume him tomorrow, says Agrippina, to a silent nod from Livilla, as a low moan carries the words, my head, my head, across to them on the night wind. A hot, dry summer's night, years later. The baking heat of summer in the city has been turned into a furnace by a fire that has raged for five days and five nights so far. The flames have been licking the edge of the Palatine Hill since they broke out, but now they are engulfing it. The watchmen in the old emperor's house are in a state of panic. Emperor Nero is finally coming to the city to oversee the firefighting. If someone finds out they abandoned their posts, they will not see another night. The man has murdered his own mother, stepbrother, wife and aunt. He will have no mercy for a few scared watchmen. On the other hand, there seems little point saving oneself from execution by dying in an inferno. The last two watchmen left find each other in a small room with a few couches in it. They look at each other. They nod. But it is too late. There is no way out. All the exits are blocked by fire and smoke and the pool in the atrium is boiling. Only one exit has not yet been consumed by the flames. The covered corridor. It will lead them out of the house, but to enter into a covered area full of smoke seems like setting foot on a path straight to Hades. Having no other choice, the two watchmen dive forward into the gloom together. Out of the smoke, a terrible apparition rises before their soup-covered faces. A man or something that used to be a man, bleeding from every part of his body, even the most private. He moans and groans and reaches out his battered arms towards them. You can't kill me, I'm a god, the monster screams, then clutches his bloody head and calls out in a low voice, my head, my head. The watchmen have seen this thing before. Before, always, they have fled in terror, finding some other room to watch, some other gate to guard. But now, there is nowhere to go but back into the fire. The two men grip each other's hands silently in the smoke, choking on the ash of the palace's funeral pyre. They take a breath, small, shallow, just enough to propel them out of there, 
and together they run right through the image of the dead emperor. For a moment their clothes gleam red with phantom blood and the shadows of broken arms reach out to grab at them and pull them back. But it is insubstantial, this spectre, and it cannot stop them. They run and they run until they burst out of the corridor and into the open air. For just a moment, they turn around to look back at the palace. They made it just in time. The flames have engulfed the whole building now and the walls are crumbling before their eyes. Just in front of the house, at the end of the corridor, they see the bloodied figure raise up its arms to the heavens and then it seems to be consumed by the flames. As the corridor itself falls into a smouldering ruin, the figure disappears, as if eaten up by the flames. Then, for a moment, there is a feeling of absolute peace. It is as if a hanging threat, the despair of a soul troubled throughout life and death, has been lifted. There is a moment of calm. The flames rise higher and the watchmen turn and flee. Whatever new evils may rise in its place, this one at least will not return. The end. Welcome back to Creepy Classics, the podcast retelling and discussing ancient medieval and early modern ghost stories. I am Juliet Harrison. Uh, please forgive the occasional thumping sound in the background, which is the workmen next door. Um, hopefully it just adds to the atmosphere. <laughs> this week's is a pretty creepy story. Um, also, I am switching the podcast to every two months rather than every month. There just aren't enough hours in the day, unfortunately, um, to be doing one every month. And the, the quality was really going to suffer if I tried. So uh, we're now on every two months uh, for Creepy Classics. So, this week's story is the story of Caligula. I am absolutely fascinated by Caligula. I think he is one of the most interesting of the Roman emperors. Um, he's just such a fascinating figure. I became familiar with him through the television adaptation of Robert Graves' novel I, Claudius, and then the novel itself, but uh, the history around Caligula is, is just absolutely fascinating. Uh, so, the story comes from Suetonius, his life of Caligula. Uh, I have mainly based my version on Suetonius with kind of bits and pieces from others where necessary. Uh, improperly buried people haunting um, because they haven't been buried properly and can't join the underworld is an incredibly common theme in ancient ghost stories. I'm sure we've come across it before and we will again. Um, it is quite possibly the most common reason for a ghost to be haunting anywhere um, in ancient literature. That goes for both ancient Greece and ancient Rome, so it's not specific to the Roman religious funerary practices that we're talking about today. Um, it applies to, to ancient Greek material too. Uh, so I have terrible spatial awareness, um, and even though I've led study trips to Rome three times, um, I struggle to picture the topography of Rome, but I have done my best um, to get the topography right. Basically, Caligula is killed in a covered corridor leading from some outside temporary galleries into what Suetonius refers to as his house, his domus. Presumably it's some kind of imperial palace on the Palatine. He is buried in the Lamian Gardens on the Esquiline Hill. Um, so I have tried to kind of explain what's going on and which hill we're on. 
as best I can. Um, Suetonius says he was killed in this covered corridor, that there were terrors every night in the Domus, the house where he was killed until it was destroyed by fire, which I've interpreted as being the Great Fire of 64 CE when Nero was emperor. Suetonius is not specific and there were numerous fires in Rome, but I went for that one. Um, he also says that until his sisters reburied him, uh, that he haunted the Lamian Gardens, where he had been half cremated and buried. At this point, I suddenly realised I needed to know who buried him, <laughs> and I had absolutely no idea. Um, I had a look at some uh, scholars who've sort of looked into it. Uh, basically, um, Noy quoting Barrett suggests it might have been Herod Agrippa after Caligula's wife Sisonia was killed. Uh, Wiseman suggested it was devoted ex-slaves. Uh, it was devoted ex-slaves who buried Nero and Domitian, later emperors who were assassinated. Uh, I went with Herod Agrippa, uh, the Jewish king. He was king of Judea later, but he was already king of some territories at this point. Uh, he was a very close friend of the Emperor Tiberius' son, of the Emperor Caligula, and uh, of the Emperor Claudius, at least um, until a little bit into Claudius' reign. Um, I, I just thought Caligula treated everyone around him so badly. I wasn't sure his ex-slaves, uh, his freedmen or, or current slaves would be that devoted. Um, but Herod Agrippa clearly was uh, a very close friend of his. Um, Narcissus is one of Claudius' freedmen who helped him rule, so I have made him still a slave at this point on the assumption that he's freed afterwards. Caligula's sister Livilla was exiled and executed shortly after reburying him in their family mausoleum, the Mausoleum of Augustus. His other sister Agrippina married their uncle Claudius uh, after his other wife was executed. Uh, she was eventually murdered by her own son Nero, so she, she was killed in the end, um, but it was quite difficult to kill her. Um, which is why I've had Livilla sort of think she'd survive anything. The Flood is not just a Judeo-Christian story. There are flood stories from pagan Mesopotamia. Stories of great floods are fairly common. Um, so they're not referring to the story of Noah specifically, but uh, stories of capital F floods uh, were around. I've also referred to Antigone, a Greek play about the daughter of Oedipus. Uh, both her brothers are killed fighting each other. And the one who attacked their city is not buried properly and she insists on burying him properly and then she ends up dead. Long story. Um, but there's a very clear parallel um, with the real life story of Agrippina and the villa. And they may have been inspired by that play um, when they decided they were going to properly rebury their brother. Uh, they had been exiled at the time he was killed. Claudius brought them back um, before re-exiling the villa. One of King's central theses in his book is that rituals were performed for the deceased worshipping their manes. His central thesis is that the Roman manes were gods and that nearly all the Roman dead were worshipped regularly by those still living. I find it very convincing, if not entirely convincing. I mean, it's brilliant scholarship. I'm almost convinced. Almost, I think. <laughs> I wrote a review of it in the Classical Review um, if you are interested in more detailed thoughts. Uh, but basically, that's kind of what I'm referring to here. The idea that there is a duty on the heirs to worship the manes, the divine spirit of the dead. That Herod Agrippa, as a Jewish person, is not going to actually do that, but that he will cover the more practical aspects to honour his friend. 
Most of the evidence for Caligula comes from three writers, uh, the Jewish writers, both Philo and Josephus. Philo led an embassy to Gaius. Gaius is Caligula's actual name. Caligula is his nickname, meaning little boot. <coughs> Philo led an embassy to uh, him to talk about issues they were having in Alexandria, where he was from. Uh, and he describes um, the visit and uh, Caligula himself. Um, Josephus also has quite a bit of detail. Josephus has much more detail on Caligula's assassination than Suetonius does. I've sort of glanced at Josephus to take little bits, but I haven't included the massive amount of detail Josephus does because I am focusing primarily on Suetonius and the ghost story, which appears only in Suetonius. Suetonius uh, wrote his Life of Caligula, part of Life of Gaius rather, part of his Lives of the Caesars, which covers the first emperors um, from Augustus to Domitian as well as Julius Caesar. And he tends to either write very favourably or very unfavourably about most of them. And the inverted commas bad ones that he doesn't like, he can get very extreme in various different ways. Uh, Claudius is interesting because he's a little bit more middle ground with Claudius. Suetonius really doesn't seem to like him very much, but he doesn't suggest he was as bad as the other kind of inverted commas bad emperors, which would be uh, Tiberius, Caligula, Nero, Domitian. Um, he, in his lives of Caligula and Nero, starts out with a list of the good things they did, and then he says, right, that's it for the emperor now for the monster. Uh, that's a quote from one or the other of them, I forget which, and the other one has a very similar line in it. And then he just goes through all the terrible things they did and how awful they were. Now, Suetonius calls Caligula particularly, uh, suggests he is mad. Um, I use that word because it is the most accurate translation of the Latin and Greek terms that are being used. They don't have a, a neutral term for mental illness in the ancient world. Um, all of the, the terms they use, the, the English translations tend to be pejorative, and that that is part of the use in the Latin. Um, it, they aren't neutral words that he's using, and it is part of his criticism of Caligula. Now, as modern historians, we aren't sure whether he had an illness, a mental illness, or whether he in fact was perfectly healthy but there are so many exaggerated stories in the biography that um, the, the Romans called him mad but that his actions weren't actually the actions of somebody who was unwell. Personally I tend to think Caligula I, I think had some kind of um, of illness. I mean he wasn't all that healthy, he had a falling sickness from childhood he nearly dies a few months into his reign. After that illness, he seems to get worse. Not everything he does that Suetonius says, oh, he's mad, um, suggests mental illness um, to us. But he does seem to... He had terrible trouble sleeping, um, headaches. And he does seem to have thought the ocean was talking to him and things like that. Again, Suetonius might be exaggerating, Suetonius might be reporting gossip, um, but given Caligula's health problems, I tend to assume he had some kind of illness that affected his brain in some way. Nero, I think, just wasn't a nice person. <laughs> That's really just my personal opinion from having read the biographies many times. Um, I really don't know enough about the medical side of it to say for sure, but that's sort of the impression I tend to get. 
Um, and then there's Claudius. It's not impossible that he was behind the assassination. Um, and that would make a great fictionalised version. Um, so uh, my friend uh, Tony Keane has blogged on that um, some years ago now. In a blog post called I Unreliable. Um, but that would be a fictionalised interpretation. There's no actual evidence to support that view, although it seems plausible. Uh, but I decided to go with the more traditional view instead, um, which is clearly expressed by Suetonius and Cassius Dio, uh, which is that Claudius hid behind a curtain in a panic and then was found by soldiers who declared him emperor. Um, it fits better with the overall atmosphere of the story and it saves going into all sorts of plot developments that this particular story didn't really need. Uh, I didn't go as far as Robert Graves does in I, Claudius, where Claudius actually wants to restore the Republic and has to be talked out of it by Herod Agrippa. Um, Herod helping out, Herod going to see Claudius and helping him um, talk with the Senate and work things out is in the in the sources, in the historical sources, particularly in Josephus, of course, but in Suetonius as well. Um, so that's historically accurate. Caligula's uh, You Can't Kill Me, I'm a God, I have to confess, I have plagiarised from Robert Graves, that is from I, Claudius, um, but the rest of it is all from the historical sources, and he certainly was very keen in, on having everybody worship him as a god, um, so it seemed appropriate. Uh, Charles King, in his book on the ancient Roman afterlife, has lots of details on inheritance and how inheritance laws related to carrying out funerary rituals. So um, this is kind of the reasoning I've given Herod. Now, obviously, Herod is Caligula's friend. He wants to have him buried properly for that reason. Um, but also, um, King says uh, that Cicero quotes a priest called Scaevola, who says the requirement to perform rituals for the dead goes first to their heirs, then to people who received as much as or more than the heirs from a deathbed bequest or will, then to whoever gets the greatest share of their property, then to whichever creditor holds the biggest portion of the estate, and finally to anyone who owed the deceased money and never paid it. So Caligula's wife and child are killed. Uh, I've had Herod not sure if Claudius is alive or not. So I've had Herod say, OK, it's my job to do this because I owed him money. Now, obviously, Herod is Jewish, so I've not had him... Um, say any sort of pagan prayers or worship... Uh, the dead Caligula, which is what King suggests was also part of these duties. So uh, part of King's argument in his book is that um, funerary rituals included a duty to worship the manes, the divine spirit of the dead person. Now, of course, Herod Agrippa, a Jewish king, isn't going to do that. Um, but I have had him carry out the more practical side of the rituals. Suetonius says that Caligula was half burned and then hastily buried. Now, Herod Agrippa is not Herod the Great. <laughs> he is the grandson of Herod the Great. So Herod the Great is the infamous king um, who, in the Bible, uh, murders all children under the age of two, trying to kill the Messiah. Um, he also killed off quite a lot of his own family, including Herod Agrippa's father, who was Herod the Great's son. Uh, Herod Agrippa is, uh, is his grandson, named for his own grandfather, Herod the Great, and also for Emperor Augustus, son-in-law and BFF, who was also Caligula's grandfather, uh, Marcus Agrippa. He grew up in Rome. He was sort of there as a bit of a hostage, but um, he became great friends uh, with the imperial family. Friendly, as I said earlier, with Tiberius' son, with Caligula, with Claudius. Uh, he was king of a number of territories, including Judea, 
Um, and he, after Claudius became emperor, was briefly proclaimed as the Messiah, but then died eaten by worms, according to Acts of the Apostles 12. Um, Blastus was his king of the bedchamber, to quote Acts 12.20, usually translated into Chamberlain in English, so presumably some kind of personal slave, valet, body slave, or freedman, something along those lines. Um, So he's historical as well. In Roman cremation, the body is burned on a pyre until only ashes and fragments of bone remain and then placed in an urn. The soft tissue goes first, which would make the corpse unrecognisable, so half-burning stops enemies from desecrating the body. And according to Varro, the Roman writer, uh, people stayed with the body until it was burnt and the ashes collected. Now, Noy, whose article goes over all this, uh, thinks it can't have been a common practice because it would have taken a long time, seven, ten or even more hours. But I think that's no reason it wouldn't have been common practice. I think we need to remember that the Romans lived in a different world and they lived at a different speed. And I think they probably did just stay there all day. Uh, And that is what I have Herod intending to do before he gets called away. Now, they may have had bathroom breaks uh, and I have given Herod a folding chair, which did exist. They were specifically for rulers. They were sort of throne type chairs, but they did have folding chairs. Um, And I'm sure they had comfort breaks in this day. Um, But yeah, I don't think there's any reason um, to think that the Romans wouldn't have have stayed there um, all day while the body burned um, as part of the the funeral rites. So that's what I've had them do in the story. Um, And then obviously uh, Suetonius says that um, Caligula's ghost haunted the gardens until reburied, but haunted the house where he was killed until the house was destroyed. so clearly uh, in my story where I've had the house destroyed later, um, the, the uh, reburial didn't entirely work. Um, his soul could not rest uh, until the house was destroyed as well. Um, Suetonius doesn't offer any kind of explanation for why that would be the case. He's basically just reporting stories that he's heard. You know, this is uh, classic ghost folklore. And of course, it's not uncommon anytime somebody famous is killed somewhere. Oh, you know, this person was killed here and it's haunted by them. It's a very, very common story. So, um, lots of things to read if you are interested in reading more about any of that. So, um, all of the primary sources are available online. Uh, Suetonius Lies of Caligula and of Claudius covering uh, elements of how Claudius became emperor are available online for free um, on perseus.tufts.edu or on Lacus Curtius. Um, Lacus Curtius is a brilliant website with loads of primary source texts. Um, Cassius Dio is on there as well who covers these events Um, and Josephus uh, Jewish Antiquities. Um, It's a bit harder to find but it is there or it's on Perseus. And on The Great Fire, which I mentioned a bit more briefly towards the end, and on Nero, again, Suetonius and Tacitus Annals um, are all on those websites. Nero and Agrippina are characters we're going to come back to. Um, They are fascinating characters. There are quite a few more ghost stories associated with Nero and Agrippina. So we're going to be meeting them again at some point. And I've mentioned several uh, secondary sources already. Um, The story was highlighted for me, although I'd come across it before, by Emma Southern's book, uh, Agrippina, Empress, Exile, Hustler, Whore, 
Uh, it has a different subtitle in the States. I think uh, Agrippina, the most extraordinary woman in the Roman world, I believe, is the, the subtitle in the States. Um, I've mentioned that book before. It's an excellent popular history. Um, Emma is a friend of mine of many years and it's really good stuff. Um, and it's got several ghost stories that she highlights in there, uh, reminding me of how many ghost stories are in Suetonius, <laughs> who I hadn't read cover to cover for a little while. Uh, there is a New York Times article on the gardens, the Lamian Gardens, uh, where it talks about them as Caligula's Garden of Delight. Um, and it has a few pictures. Uh, yeah, Caligula's Garden of Delights unearthed and restored from the New York Times, which was very useful in terms of practical um, bits and pieces about the gardens. And I've mentioned several times Charles King's book, The Ancient Roman Afterlife. I absolutely recommend this if you have any interest in Roman afterlife belief on any level. It is a really, really good book. It is well worth the investment. If you have access to academic journals on JSTOR, a um, couple of articles. I've mentioned David Noy's article a couple of times, which was very useful. Uh, Half burnt on an emergency pyre, Roman cremations which went wrong. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that quote is from Suetonius' Life of Caligula. That's David Noy in Greece and Rome, volume 47. Uh, I also had a look at an article by John Curran, Philohomoioi, uh, the Herods between Rome and Jerusalem, that was on Herod Agrippa, in the Journal for the Study of Judaism in the Persian Hellenistic and Roman Period, volume 45. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, we will be back in two months time, uh, so uh, somewhere around the end of April. Um, with another story, uh, probably another Roman one. I will get to Agrippina uh, and Nero at some point, but we may have a break from um, Agrippina for a month or so. We'll have to see. We'll see how the mood takes us next uh, next month. Um, but yes, we'll be back by the end of April with another episode. Creepy Classics was written and performed by Juliet Harrison. Music composed and performed by Ed Harrison. It was produced by Juliet Harrison with assistance from Newman University.